Wow, and we're just getting going. <laughs> That's amazing. Isn't, wouldn't it be fun if our, headline, our newspaper headlines shared just a little taste of some of that? Thank you very much, guys. It's such a rich feast. Um, well, I want to move on to the third part of our program now. Um, and I mentioned earlier that in order to do that and look a little bit more at the refugee resettlement process and hear a little bit more about the context of refugees here in the States, uh, we've invited a guest from an organization called World Relief. Um, many of you have probably heard the name of that organization. It's an, it's an organization that dates back to, I think it's 1944. Um, I think I have it. In, yes, I do have it in my notes. 1944. Um, and it was launched as the humanitarian arm of the National Association of Evangelicals. So that's the history behind uh, World Relief. Um, over the years, um, they became one of nine resettlement agencies here in the States. And so um, that's just part of what they do. They have a, a broader reach. They do other global work and other initiatives. But for tonight's purpose, we're going to hone in on the work that World, Re World Relief does with refugees. And I uh, got introduced to Nathan, who serves on the World Relief staff, about a year ago. Uh, we met before the word refugee was buzzing around in the headlines, uh, before it was even a polarizing topic. Um, I learned that World Relief uh, was thinking about opening a resettlement agency here in Kansas City, and I was ecstatic about it. Uh, during my seminary years in Chicago, I had come to know of World Relief in that city, and I had come to see how they were really unique as a resettlement agency because they really valued the church at the center of their strategy. So they did refugee resettlement in ways that so many other, people, other agencies do, and many of them are faith-based. But um, my experience with World Relief is that they weren't just faith-based, but they also um, longed to see the church mobilized and team with them in this work of um, relationship building with refugees. And so I knew they shared um, that, that idea of the church at, at the centerpiece of, of God's heart. Um, and then also, I was really ecstatic about the idea of World Relief here in Kansas City because we often hear from our global partners um, feedback and encouragement that in order to be really helpful partners globally, one of the most strategic things we can do is learn to care for the global citizens right here in Kansas City, is to care for the global diaspora. And, um, and so I was thinking not only is this, this a possibility of World Relief being here in Kansas City with support and training for the church and a desire to team and have the church in a central role, in a strategic role, but also their presence will open the pipeline even more for even more refugees who would come here to Kansas City. And so for all these reasons, it was kind of like a piece of cake when I heard it. I was like, oh my goodness, there's all these wonderful synergies um, coming up, coming together. Um, well, little did I know a year ago that um, this political ping pong game would start up. And, um, and again, um, just the growing complexity of world circumstances. And of course, I knew that refugees come from countries that have a lot of complexity. But I, I hadn't anticipated uh, where we would find ourselves today, and um, even, the, even on this day today, um, we don't know the future of World Relief's plans to be here in Kansas City exactly. Uh, we know that God knows um, the story that he wants to write, 
Um, but there has been increasing complexity with their plans. I mean, they've spent, um, you know, they were working on this months before I met Nathan over a year ago. And, um, and the last few months have just continued to be really, really difficult work um, to explore, again, um, how is God providing and to try to do the work um, in, in the grace of God with the human efforts that they can um, to continue moving forward with plans to be here in Kansas City. But whether or not they ever uh, come to Kansas City as a refugee resettlement agency or not, what's true is that they have been helping and working in this arena now for decades. And they've had a front row seat at getting to watch churches engage in, um, again, in teaming up, building relationships, and um, both serving and being served by refugees. And so we, we, when we were thinking about this evening, we just couldn't think of a better uh, group to come and share with us a little bit more of an education on how the process works. And um, it's funny, I was thinking as David was up here preaching with his business degree, Nathan will be up here with his MDiv degree <laughs> sharing about refugee resettlement. So Nathan's an ex-pastor, don't hold it against him. Um, he was a Fuller grad and um, now has been for two years on the staff with World Relief as a new site specialist. So his role is about this work of setting up new sites uh, for the um, new sites for World Relief. So join me in welcoming Nathan to the stage. Friends, thank you for that very kind introduction, and thank you for being here. Thank you for this opportunity to share with you uh, about something that I care about deeply, obviously, and so do you, because you're here. So that's great. And um, Jeanette, of course, thank you for your um, extraordinary hospitality. I always enjoy my time in Kansas City, and that is largely due to friends like yourself. So thank you. So as David shared, the question that the church must answer is not if we should respond to the world's refugees. Because for those of us who've been welcomed into the one new family that God is creating, of people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and because we've been welcomed by one whose own family once fled for their lives, just as refugees do today, and because that one who welcomes us not only commands his followers to welcome strangers, but he goes even farther. And he says that when you welcome a stranger, it is me that you've welcomed. When you refuse a stranger, it is me you have refused. Because I am located there among them. And so for us, the body of Christ, we no longer seem to have the option of if we will respond to refugees. Yet as Tom and others have wisely said throughout our evening, we may leave this place with significant differences of, of opinion in how we ought to respond. My objective, regardless of how you end up answering that question, is that uh, you know, individually, as a family, as a congregation, my hope for this next section is for all of us to leave with a clear, shared understanding of the who, the where, the what, and the why of the refugee crisis. Um, and so even though we've talked and we'll probably continue to talk a great deal about the current crisis, I want to make one thing clear, and that's that refugees are by no means a new part of the human story. Um, I already alluded to Jesus, whose own parents fled to Egypt uh, to escape violence at the hands of their own government uh, in Matthew 2. And yet that's only one example from our own scriptures. In fact, I think there's a deliberate knowing symmetry that the gospel writer employs, an irony in taking Israel's Messiah, who he takes the entire first chapter establishing his credentials of being of the line of Abraham, of David, 
um, and being in, firmly in that tradition, and then takes Israel's Messiah and has him flee into Egypt. Egypt, the country from which the people of Israel fled, and, and, and their, their shared identity was really forged through that experience, that shared experience together. Egypt, a land where their Hebrew ethnicity singled them out for suffering, for abuse, for fear, and that's really where it all began, for forced labor and eventually outright genocide as Hebrew baby boys were slaughtered to keep the people's numbers low because of who they were. And so it turns out that when people living in hellish conditions cry out to the heavens because there is simply nothing else they can do, there's a God who hears that cry and who does something about it. And from that day forward, whenever that God who moves with the oppressed and moves when they cry would call to his people, he would often begin by reminding them of their shared refugee story. This recurring phrase in the Old Testament, I'm the Lord your God, the God who brought you up out of Egypt, where you were slaves, where you were singled out for suspicion, abuse, and violence simply because you are who you are. And that right there is probably the simplest way and the best way that I can answer this first question before us. Who are refugees? In the aftermath of World War II, the last time as many people had been displaced by violence as there are at this moment right now, the international community came together to form the following definition, and I'll read it. I know it's probably small for some of you in the back. And it's this. A refugee is a person who, owing to a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or political opinion is outside the country of his or her nationality and is unable to or owing to such fear is unwilling to avail himself or herself of the protection of that country. So just two things to notice here to make it really clear who we're talking about and who we're not. There may be any number of reasons that compel people to leave their home countries. Um, natural disaster might be one. In fact, uh, a few years ago when there was the earthquake in Haiti, we saw headlines that talked about Haitian refugees fleeing to the United States, which is, I suppose in a grammatical sense is true, but that's not who we're talking about here. Likewise, economic disaster uh, causes people to move from one place to another, and I think we would, we, they would have our sympathy when they do it. But to be clear, when we talk about refugees, we're talking about people who have fled persecution, specifically, for one of those five reasons that I just listed. And the second thing to notice is that a refugee is someone who has crossed a border and is no longer staying in his or her country of origin because the government there either can't or won't protect them. Make sense? So by our best estimates, this definition of a refugee applies to 20 million people in our world today. And that's on top of another 40 million who have fled conflict but are still in their countries. Those are people that we would call internally displaced. It's about twice as many, and that makes a total of 60 million people forcibly displaced by conflict at this moment. But what I don't want our conversation tonight to be is simply about numbers. Because when you reach a certain point, there's, there's like this ceiling where numbers become this really abstract way of talking about living, breathing, beloved daughters and sons of God who are living amongst extreme tragedy. And so I don't want that to be true for us tonight. So let's imagine together. Imagine 
what it would take for you and your family, if you have one, to get up from the home where you live, take everything you can carry, and leave. Probably on foot, because in our imagined shared tragedy, um, whoever is looking for you and, and whoever wants to persecute you probably will be looking for you on the roads, and actually get up and flee into another country where you may not know anyone or anything. How bad would things have to be for you to actually make a decision like that? One major source country for refugees today is the Democratic Republic of Congo. Now, the world has not paid much attention to the DRC, where the world's uh, longest ongoing violent conflict has raged for several decades now. And one of the defining features of the conflict in the DRC is not only that men and boys are often coerced to join any one of the rival militias that are jostling for power, but the militias and those who are power players actually employ sexual violence against women and girls as a way of keeping the population afraid and keeping the population um, uh, under their control. And so many families from the Congo, like the one you see pictured here, um, have fled the country for safety. Let me talk about another situation that um, produces refugees in the world, and that's Somalia. Um, in fact, Somalis, uh, in case you're interested, represent the largest group of refugees who have resettled in Kansas City, Missouri, in recent years. Um, so Somalia is, by and large, a lawless country where um, yeah, there has been no functional government for many decades, and the result is that violent criminals have the ability to prey upon their neighbors without fear of consequences because there are no consequences. And so many Somalis have fled to neighboring countries like Kenya, where just across the border from Somalia into Kenya, there are actually refugee camps, like Perna talked about a bit ago. And, and these camps have grown into the size of major world cities. There are children, as you mentioned, like yourself, who um, have lived knowing nothing other than life in a refugee camp. Um, you know, some of them have a million residents or more. There are other countries that I could talk about, too. We could talk about uh, Bhutan, and you know, Perna, our brother, shared, of course, about the, the situation that his family fled there. Uh, we could talk about uh, Burma, which is also known as Myanmar. We could talk about Iran, where religious minorities, like the Christians you see pictured here, um, are actively uh, and systematically persecuted for their faith. Um, we could talk about Iraq, Iraq, which is, of course, a country that... Um, uh, has been engulfed in new waves of violence in the last few years. And then finally, uh, we could talk about the country that I'm guessing served as a gateway uh, for awareness to many here, which is Syria. And because it's been a gateway for awareness and interest for so many of us, let me just try to provide a bit of scale to the effects of that civil war that David talked about, uh, which began in 2011 again uh, and have borne so many profound, lasting effects on Syrians. Give or take, Syria is a country of about 23 million. Of course, it's hard to estimate something like that at a time like this, but 23 million before the war was the, the number that was given. For context, that's about the size of, it's a little bit bigger than Florida. Florida is one of our larger states. It's about 20 million people. Uh, Syria is thought to be 23 million. Now, that 23 million includes a couple of different groups. 
One, there are 7.6 million IDPs, um, internally displaced people, still within Syria, but no longer in their homes. Their homes have been destroyed. Their homes are not safe to return to. Um, their homes are behind the, the battlefront of you know, one uh, rival uh, rebel group or another that they do not wish to, um, yeah, <laughs> that they don't, don't wish to be around for obvious reasons. And that's also including the 4.7 million refugees. And these numbers are accurate as of uh, Tuesday. I actually checked into it. 4.7 million Syrians have left the country as refugees. Um, and so if you add those two together, that's 12.3 million. That's over half of the country of Syria that is no longer living in their homes, living in Syria or outside of Syria uh, because of the conflict there. Hopefully that provides some scale for what we're talking about here. Now, of course, most Syrian refugees, if they are fleeing the country, are going to land in countries that are immediately bordering Syria. Turkey, Jordan, Lebanon, Iraq. And you see those listed here. Uh, this is, these are approximate numbers for how many refugees, how many Syrian refugees are living in each of those countries. Now, of course, Iraq is listed first. The tragic thing about the situation in Syria is that so many Syrians fled into Iraq, which is a pretty manageable distance, uh, only to realize that the situation in Iraq was changing for the worse very, very quickly. And so a lot of them have become refugees almost twice over. They've had to flee somewhere else after um, the, the newest round of violence there. Um, Jordan and Lebanon are not large countries. Syria is a moderately sized country, right? 23 million people. I mean, Jordan has, I think, about 6 million people. So if you can imagine the strain of about 10% of a country's population um, flowing in through the borders in a very short amount of time, it leads to tension. It really, really does. And of course, Turkey, a much larger country, uh, 2.6 million um, uh, Syrians are living there now. Now, of course, uh, the thing that brought a lot of our uh, attention to the Syrian crisis is um, the fact that many Syrians uh, were fleeing um, by land, some by boat, um, some with tragic consequences uh, into Europe. And so uh, it's about uh, 900,000 uh, Syrians that have now reached Europe and are seeking asylum there. And again, for context, we'll talk about how um, Syrians and other refugees come to the United States. But uh, since the start of the war in 2011, 2,779 Syrians have been resettled as refugees in the United States. Okay? That brings us to another reason that many of you are probably interested in this topic. Once a person becomes a refugee, where do they go? What do they do? Or where would you go if the unthinkable happened in your world, if your life was shattered? Um, what options would you have? Well, for the overwhelming majority of refugees, your options aren't good. Some refugees find temporary relief in refugee camps, it's true. Um, uh, that's where this photograph of a Somali girl was taken, actually. But most refugees today, over half, especially those fleeing Iraq and Syria, uh, aim for the nearest city they can reach on foot. They dwell in urban settings for the most part. And when they're there, they make a living however they can, more or less on the margins of society. Um, you know, they, uh, they are not authorized to work in this country where they are. Um, and they're competing with hundreds of thousands of their uh, you know, fellow Syrians for a few under-the-table jobs that barely pay anything. Um, the journey has been a difficult one. Some members of the family might be in dire need of medical care, and certainly all of them are in need of trauma therapy of some kind after what they've gone through. But what can you do? You can 
watch the situation in your home country in the hopes that things might improve enough that you can go back. Um, and for most refugees, I think that would be the optimal choice. Most refugees would love to be able to go back home and rebuild their lives there someday if they can. In some cases, the country of refuge, the second country that refugees have entered, um, may offer the opportunity for some refugees to remain there. Um, and staying in the second country, uh, it doesn't happen very often, but when it does, it means less upheaval for people that have already been through a fair amount of upheaval, which is probably a good thing. But in most cases, returning to one's first country isn't an option. And remaining in the second country into which one has fled officially is not an option. Of course, that is what winds up happening de facto. Refugees remain in those countries for many, many, many years and sometimes never you know, grow up again, not knowing what it's like to have a place of one's own, uh, a place where one is, is settled permanently. Um, but in extremely rare cases, when a refugee or a family has been identified as particularly vulnerable, um, they are offered a third option in some very, very um, uh, extremely rare cases, and that's resettlement in a third country. There are a handful of countries around the world, and the number is growing, that uh, announce each year that they're willing to receive a limited number of the world's refugees to come and live as permanent legal residents uh, with the right to work, the right to move and uh, live anywhere they please within their borders. Uh, and the United States is included among those countries. Now, of course, you could argue that this is nothing new for our country. Uh, our country has been uh, a refugee-welcoming country even before it was a country. I mean, if you, you know, want to go back to the Thanksgiving story of the pilgrims on the Mayflower, and a lot of our European ancestors who were the first to come to this country as immigrants, many of them moved simply because of religious persecution or uh, reasons along those lines. Now, in a more systematized way, the United States began receiving refugees in the 1970s when the um, Vietnamese uh, boat people sort of emerged into the public consciousness. In the 1980s, the United States welcomed citizens of the Soviet Union, its mortal enemy, at the apex of the Cold War. In the 1990s, um, the so-called lost boys of the Sudan were among the more recognizable uh, refugee populations uh, that came to the United States. In fact, I believe a lot of those uh, lost boys were resettled here in the Kansas City area. And of course, they're not boys anymore or girls. They're now men and women, um, some of whom have um, enriched their community um, beyond measure. In the 2000s, Iraqis and Afghans who worked as um, translators and did other services for the U.S., and other foreign powers found their lives threatened and then were granted special permission to resettle here. And as I said, as each decade has passed, refugees have enriched the communities that receive them by becoming employees, by becoming nurses, doctors, teachers, and frequently, quite frequently, starting their own businesses. Refugees have um, become mothers and fathers and grandparents. They have become uh, elected officials. They have become leaders in their local churches. They've become pastors and church planners, some of whom do eventually return to their home countries after many years away to make disciples in their own native language and culture far more effectively than any outside missionary ever could. So the number of refugees that the U.S. and other countries agree to admit, it varies from year to year depending on need and the community's capacity to absorb them. 
Um, in fiscal year 2016, the year that we're in right now, uh, that number has been set at uh, 85,000 individuals. Let me put that number up there for you. Um, and that seems, if that seems like a lot, just doing a little bit of basic math, which is not my forte, but I, you know, had <laughs> a calculator available to me when I did it. Uh, if it seems like a lot, bear in mind that that's less than half of 1% of the 20 million or so refugees throughout the world right now. So it's not, it's not a huge number. Um, and that's distributed among um, cities throughout the country. Um, and most states receive refugees. So step by step, though in very uh, admittedly condensed form simply for the sake of time, here's how a refugee is identified, selected, and uh, vetted and approved and brought to live in communities across the United States. The first step is this, that each refugee's case is researched by the UN um, High Commissioner on Refugees, the UNHCR. That's the, um, uh, they, they, um, they examine whether there's evidence to confirm that uh, he or she meets uh, the criteria that we just outlined, um, uh, a documented uh, fear or well-founded fear of persecution on the basis of race, religion, nationality, any of those other um, qualities that we listed, um, and that returning to his or her home country is not an option. And considering the extremely low ceiling in which resettlement is possible in third countries, um, they really have to weed through which cases are the most high priority, who is the most vulnerable where they are right now, and simply has to go somewhere else. Um, single mothers whose you know, uh, husbands perhaps have been killed, um, whose husbands have been taken for whatever reason, um, who have young children, uh, people with uh, special uh, medical needs, for example. And once it's been confirmed that a refugee's case is protracted, the UNHCR then refers that refugee to a third country to be resettled. There we go. Um, when the US Department of State re receives a referral from the UN, there's a series of actions that take place uh, law enforcement and intelligence agencies are called upon to conduct individual comprehensive background checks on each refugee, and then they swap information and share information uh, amongst themselves. Uh, the agencies, I'm not going to list them all, but include the, the FBI, the National Counterterrorism Center, uh, the P Department of Homeland Security, the U.S. Um, CIS, I forget what that stands for, um, Center for... Citizenship and Immigration Services, thank you. Um, uh, once these background checks are complete, um, the officers of, um, oops, I think I keep swiping the wrong way. Um, the, uh, if the Department of Homeland Security is sufficiently satisfied with um, the response that they've uh, received. Let me put that up for you. Um, what happens is then there is a series of in-person interviews that are scheduled in the country where the refugee has taken refuge. Um, each refugee that satisfactorily goes through this interview process then receives a comprehensive medical screening. Uh, among other things, this is an opportunity to ensure that refugees uh, don't carry any transmittable diseases or that those diseases are addressed if possible uh, before they go anywhere. Um, it's also, it also allows the USCIS to create a profile of each refugee's health history so that when he or she arrives in, say, the United States, they can be referred for treatment. Um, uh, if the refugee has a simple condition like you know, heart condition or uh, diabetes, they'll receive follow-up treatment when they arrive. 
If their needs are not standard, say if the refugee is a survivor of torture, then that's something that we're going to want to know about during the resettlement process so that we can look for a community that has resources that are um, uh, going to be beneficial to them. A, a community like Greater Kansas City obviously has medical facilities of pretty much every specialty. Uh, a smaller city like Springfield or Columbia might not be equipped to care for a case like that. And so that's something important to consider when we think about where refugees might actually live. Um, Step seven, the refugee and the rest of his or her household are assigned to uh, one of nine nonprofit agencies um, in the United States. Now, World Relief, the organization that I represent, is one of those nine agencies. Um, as JT said, um, more than half of the agencies are faith-based in some way or another. Um, other agencies that are operating here in the Kansas City area include um, Catholic Charities, uh, which is an affiliate of the Catholic Resettlement Agency. Uh, in Missouri here, there's JV, uh, Jewish Vocational Services, uh, there is also Della Lamb, uh, and those are local affiliates of the national agencies that um, receive refugees. Now, while waiting for their cases to be processed, um, refugees are offered basic orientation to life and culture in the United States. Um, and finally, uh, step nine, each refugee must pass a second interagency security check. I want to make something very clear, and I know you've probably heard this in the sound bites that have gone around, but uh, the refugee screening process that I'm talking about here and that I'm condensing a great deal uh, takes anywhere from 18 to 24 months or sometimes longer, sometimes as long as three years. And so if, you know, the agent, you know, what the agencies really want to do is look and see in that long time that we've been having this conversation, has anything changed? Has any new information emerged? And so there's a second security check at that point. Finally, um, well not finally, a couple more. Um, travel arrangements are made for the refugee. Uh, there's actually a, a loan, a uh, travel loan that refugees receive for their transportation to their third country where they resettle. Um, and why that's important is that it's a loan that refugees do repay once they arrive. Uh, and that actually is helpful to them because it establishes a credit history, allows them to be able to you know, buy a house sooner uh, rather than later. Um, the agency that is committed to serving that refugee receives uh, the refugee at the airport. Staff are there when refugees arrive. Um, and if that agency is World Relief, uh, one of the top priorities for us is to connect every refugee who is willing with a team of volunteers from a local church. Uh, we frequently call them good neighbor teams. And the good neighbor team is a group of 10 to 12 people. This is an ideal project for a life group or a small group or whatever each church has. Um, who commit to helping refugees adjust to American life over a specific length of time. This could include so many different things, um, and it's, what I like about it is that it's adaptable to the gifts and interests and skills and availability of every church group. Uh, you can be a giant church or a small church and have a really meaningful role to play in this. Um, yeah, this could include furnishing an apartment before refugees arrive. It could involve um, being there at the airport when, when refugees arrive. It could inv involve um, chauffeuring them to their first home and sharing their first meal with them. It could involve um, offering refugees transportation, rides to medical appointments. It could involve um, orienting refugees to the community that they live in. What are the grocery stores like? What should you be looking at? What should you, should you avoid? You know, what's, what's affordable? How do you get there? Uh, it could invite, involve riding public transportation insofar as it exists, uh, so that refugees know how to do it themselves the next time. It could involve um, helping parents enroll their children in school. It could involve helping re adults register for English as a second language classes. 
It could involve offering English as a second language classes. It could involve providing childcare or helping adults fill out job applications or coaching adults through what a job interview is. Uh, really, the opportunities are endless. Um, and these are services that we, as one of the nine resettlement agencies, are contractually required to provide uh, through our agreement with the State Department. Um, however, we recognize that the level of ongoing engagement that is really required for most foreign-born people to successfully transition from one very different environment to another um, is something that we, as an agency, simply aren't equipped to provide. We recognize that it's ultimately up to the refugees' neighbors to walk alongside them in the really long process of rebuilding their lives as strangers in a strange place. And for World Relief, we continually come back to the idea that there's no one better to be that team of good neighbors, there's no one better positioned, and no one more called than the local church. And so our mission is not to serve refugees or the undocumented or victims of trafficking, though we do truly care about all those people living in our midst. Our mission is empowering the local church to serve the most vulnerable. And if you're a follower of Jesus living in the United States, a nation that historically has drawn has made it a policy to draw the, the world's refugees to start new lives here, you have the opportunity to serve some of the most vulnerable people on our planet without leaving your city, maybe without leaving your neighborhood. Well, let me just say one more thing, and then I'll wrap it up, because I know there are probably some questions and comments that you might have. I'm putting up a graphic that shows the 15 largest uh, refugee arrivals. Do that again. There we go the 15 largest nationalities of refugees that have arrived in the United States during um, uh, 2015. You can see, or you would be able to see if my graphics were working, that there's um, uh, some of the nations that we already talked about. Uh, Somalia, Burma, Iraq. Do you have a way of going back to the uh, first slide? There we go. We talked about Burma, we talked about Iraq, we talked about the Democratic Republic of Congo, Bhutan, that's okay. Um, some of the smaller ones that you can't see there right now are um, Syria, which is, uh, Syrians, again, have not arrived in large numbers yet, um, Sudan, Eritrea, uh, Burundi, Afghanistan, Ethiopia. Let me, if I have the ability to do it, show you one more thing, and that is that, oh man, come on, please do it. <laughs> please go back and do it. That's all right. Um, the red uh, dots that I wanted to show you um, were, there we go. So what you're going to see here, uh, the, the deeper the shade of red, the more highly rated that these countries are by watchdog groups uh, for uh, places where Christians are most severely persecuted in the world. Um, there you go. Uh, you can see that some of, the darker, <laughs> some of the darker red circles are Somalia, Iraq, um, uh, Iran, obviously. Those are places where um, Christians are severely persecuted. And, but more or less, there was coverage across this entire map. That's the point, right? And now, again, I'm going to show you another, another figure. This is a refugee arrivals in the United States compared to unreached people groups. When I use that phrase, I'm referring to uh, people groups uh, where there is no indigenous local church presence, at least not in sufficient numbers to make disciples effectively. Um, once again, what do you notice here? There's almost 100% overlap. If indeed, as God's church, our vision is similar to the vision that John had, the vision where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation were gathered around the one throne, worshiping the one seated on that one throne, then the missional implications of this movement of people are undeniable. 
when speaking to a group of Gentiles in Athens in Acts 17, Paul he makes this remark that I, as a reader of Scripture, often struggle to know what to deal with. Um, he suggests that God utilizes the movement of people from one place to another, specifically so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. I know that so many of you share that vision, and you're here tonight because of it. And to be, I, I, I would just want to encourage you as a, as a congregation, the church, capital C, in Kansas City, has this vision. There are so many people doing so many really cool things uh, across the metro area that um, maybe, maybe not everybody knows about yet, um, but there is, there is something that God is really clearly doing that has drawn us to look at this metro area and say, how can we empower the church there better? So, um, JD, I'm going to turn it over to you, and I know you have 